You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Today, I chat with Sam Flashacker. Sam is a distinguished professor in philosophy at the University of Illinois, Chicago. He works in moral and political philosophy. His books include A Short History of Distributive Justice, The Good and The Good Book, and his latest, Being Me, Being You, Adam Smith, and Empathy. In this episode, we talk about empathy, its political potential, Adam Smith and David Hume, the opera and popular music, and so much more. Hello, Sam, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. How are you today? I'm well, Maisha. Thank you so much for inviting me here. Thank you so much for coming on. So I don't know this, this, this the answer to this question. It's strange because you're my advisor. <laughs> but but how, did you, how did you get interested in philosophy? I think the reason you don't know is that I'm a little embarrassed to tell people at times. Oh, really? But, yeah, I mean, I started being interested in philosophical questions, although I didn't know that's what they were called when I was a pretty little kid. I think before high school, I began to worry a lot about whether there was a God. I was worried about death. I had a huge a year in which I was incredibly depressed about death and wondered whether there was an afterlife and thought there would only be an afterlife if there was a God and then wondered whether there was a God. And that led me to wondering how you know things like that, how we can know. My parents didn't, certainly didn't seem to believe in any traditional afterlife or anything like that. And that led me to wondering how you know things in general. And so I was actually sort of doing epistemology by the time I was in high school. I didn't know that was what it was, what it was called. Um, and then at the same time, roughly the same time, I had a, a, a social science teacher who set us a task of constructing an imaginary government. And I had also recently read a kid's book uh, which had a kind of utopia in it, really wonderful kid's book called uh, uh, The 21 Balloons. It's actually written by someone named William Penet Dubois. And for a long time, when I saw the name Dubois, I thought it was the same person, but it's <laughs> <laughs> <that's> not. <laughs> so I began to read utopias. I liked them. And that led me into something like political philosophy, although I think I thought it was political science. So I guess by the time I came out of high school, I knew pretty well I wanted to do philosophy. I guess I thought if I wasn't very good at it, I would do something else, uh, maybe become a lawyer or something. But I went into college planning on studying philosophy. Did you, did you, did you enter there also knowing that you would eventually be a professor of philosophy? That all depended. I, I came in thinking someone would tell me either that I was really good at this stuff and should continue or that I was really not good at this stuff and should do something else. And then I'd know what else to do with my life. And that never happened. Uh, you know, I, I did okay in my classes. I did reasonably well. I got into grad school and so forth, but nobody ever sat down and said, you know, you should do this or you shouldn't do this. And I kind of wish that would happen. It doesn't happen very often in life, but yes, I think, uh, after some very unrealistic ideas about how I could do philosophy on the side of something else, I realized I had to be a professor. If I could possibly be a professor, that was the job. 
I didn't know much about the academy. I don't come from an academic home, and I, I knew very little about uh, what becoming a professor or being a professor would be like. I think that was actually something that brought you and me together, even though you might not have known that. That I identify with the fact that you also didn't come from the whole academic world. Right. Right. So I want to talk about empathy. You've just recently written a book about empathy. There have been some philosophers and some psychologists who have written things against empathy. And empathy has seemed to be kind of that possible solution that's been floating in the air about how to to solve our political divisions, uh, polarization, and also a lot of isms that exist. So I want want to explore the topic in in that particular context. You, You begin the book as any philosopher would do, right? Trying to make a sense of, of, of what, what empathy is. And there, there are a variety of accounts of empathy. But I wonder, what is it about Adam Smith's account? And people would probably be surprised that Adam Smith even had an account. But what is, what is, what is it about Adam Smith's account of empathy that is attractive to you? So let me say first, uh, in response to your introduction, I think I wrote about empathy both because I think it's really important and it can be helpful to many of our current political problems and because I think that some people exaggerate exaggerated its promise and think that it can solve all our problems on its own. And I actually think that one has to be cautious about one's use of empathy. So to some extent, I even take on board some of the current critiques of empathy. And one thing I like about Smith's account is precisely that I think it's a more modest account and uh, of empathy than some others and that he places it within a wider framework and doesn't base his his, uh, moral system entirely upon empathy, uh, although heavily so. But Smith, like his friend David Hume, uh, living at the same time in the mid-18th century, they're really some of the first people to develop an account of empathy at all. They use the word sympathy. The word empathy didn't exist in English until 1909. Uh, when it was coined by a psychologist to translate the German Einfühlung. So they didn't have that word. And uh, But what they call sympathy is pretty clearly what we call empathy. But they have different accounts of empathy. And uh, in some ways, that captures some of the differences you mentioned in uh, that's in the literature today. And what attracts me about Smith's account is, bec- is that I think it has ethical impl- uh, implications that other accounts, especially Hume's, uh, don't. So to be more specific, for Hume, I sympathize, I empathize with you when I feel what you feel. And Hume doesn't even pretend that that by itself is necessarily a good state to be in and necessarily of, of moral use all by itself. Obviously, if you are wrongly angry at something and I get wrongly angry at it, that doesn't help anybody. But for Smith, when I empathize with you, I don't necessarily feel what you feel. I feel what I think I would feel in your circumstances. Hmm. And that itself is a complicated proposition. Does he mean I feel what I would feel as me if I were just like you? Or does he mean what, what I think you would feel as you? Do I try to become like you? And in fact, I think Smith who uses language indicating both of those possibilities is moving between them and recognizes uh, that neither your identity nor my identity is entirely stable at any time and certainly in the position of empathizing. And so when I'm empathizing with you, I'm both 
thinking, well, what would I feel being me? But also, what would I think feel if I were if I were you, more like you? Hence the title of my book, Being Me, Being You. And I think that partly, I mean, one great thing about this account of empathy is that it's complex and it, and it relates empathizing with others to identifying as ourselves. It makes uh, our understanding of who we are connected to how we understand other people. And I think that's in fact true. But the more direct implication that I think is extremely important is that for Smith, because I don't necessarily feel what you feel, I can assess your feelings. I can think you're feeling too strongly or too weakly or not quite the right thing. I might think maybe you're very upset about something and I think uh, you're too upset, you're being self-indulgent in your own pain, and I might think that's unhealthy for you or unhealthy for other people. Or on the other hand, I might think you don't, you're not upset enough. Maybe you're, you've been more deeply insulted than you realize, or you're, or you're more ill than you realize, and I, I realize that you ought to do more to help yourself or to help other people. So Smith's account of empathy because it doesn't identify me with you or identify my feelings with yours, allows for a kind of assessment of feelings that I think is ethically very valuable. And Hume's doesn't really allow for that. I just feel what you feel, or I don't. Um, and that by itself doesn't give me a, a position from which I can assess your feelings. And I think a lot of people today assume that empathy means something more like what Hume says it means, that I just feel what you feel. And I don't think that's always useful. But Smith's, I think, gives us a tool for thinking about our own and other people's emotions that can be very valuable ethically. So I want to talk a little bit more about that assessment part of that, that judgment part, particularly because you think that that is a great distinction between the two. So, so given that, what, what do you think Smithian empathy can do for our moral and social lives? And I could even add political lives, right? So the, the example that you laid out is that you can imagine, you know, in, in a close relationship that happening. How can you imagine that happening politically? As, as political friends, particularly when we, one might say that we lack empathy for people that are on the other side, but what does that judgmental aspect, and I'm not using that in a pejorative sense, how, how does that play out or how would you like for it to play out in a more social context be, beyond our interpersonal friendships? Do you mind if I talk about the interpersonal a little first? Sure, sure, um, sure. Especially because that notion of judgment, some people will shy away from that, even in the interpersonal context, but okay. I actually think it could be helpful. Um, and then in the political, it's more difficult, but I do think it's useful. So in the interpersonal context, sometimes, I mean, one, one of the things is Smith, Smith also, I, I indicated this very briefly in my first answer, and I should elaborate it a little bit. I said it can change how we think about ourselves too. Smith thinks that we can empathize with ourselves, which sounds very strange, by seeing ourselves as a spectator would see us. So I think, well, how would you look at me? And that might change how I look at myself. And that in itself, I think is very useful because for one thing, I might decide that I am too angry or too hurt or angry about the wrong thing in a, circum in a set of circumstances when I think about how you might empathize with me. Of course, it could also happen if you do empathize with me in a Smithian way and have some of the same feelings I have, but not exactly the same ones. You can guide me in how I should feel. And presumably, in some cases, it's useful for me to do that with you, too. Uh, I could take you out of a, a, a deep depression by helping you see that your situation isn't as bad as you think it is if you're very upset. I can temper your joy 
in some of your own accomplishments or in something that's happened to you and make you more realistic or a little bit less, you know, full of yourself or something if that happens, not that it happens to you, Maisha, but it does happen <laughs> to some people. Um, and I can, on the other hand, and, and this is especially important to Smith, and I think should, rightly so, if you are too angry or inappropriately angry, angry I can try to redirect your anger in a, a different direction. If you if you think somebody has done something really awful to you and you want to take furious vengeance, especially, I could te help temper that if I empathize with you, but don't fully, uh, in that context, share exactly what you feel. I could also, in other circumstances, if you know you don't realize how humiliated you're being or how oppressed you're being, I could raise your anger. That's not a situation Smith thinks about that much. But that that last bit might connect more to the political. I think on the one hand that if I empathize with people who are being oppressed, if I try to understand their circumstances and think of how I would feel in those circumstances, sometimes I will understand their anger more fully than I would otherwise. And, or, and sometimes I may even think they're not angry enough and I, I could help raise their anger. I also think, though, in many cases, it can lead us to want to temper other people's anger. And I think in our current political world, well, I think we need both of those things. There are definitely people who are not angry enough about the oppression of others. But I also think there are people who are too angry on all sides of almost every political issue right now. And empathizing, especially with the people one takes to be one's political en enemies, that's really hard, but I think really important. It doesn't mean you have to agree with them. Certainly on Smithian empathy, empathy, that wouldn't necessarily happen. But you do have to understand how they've gotten to the views that they hold or the actions that they're performing and so forth. And I think that would lower the temperature of some of our discussions and make it more possible to find ways of living together, compromises and solutions and so forth. Um, so in that sense, I think Smithian empathy can be extremely useful. I want to talk about some objections and I want to hear your, your responses to them. So it's, it's two I want to talk about. So what do you say? And I also wonder as I ask these questions, do you think that these objections are directed to Smith's account or just, you know, a kind of misinterpretation of what, what you take empathy to be? So, so here's the first objection. So some people might say, you know, why argue for empathy, right? What we should be doing is arguing for other emotions. Um, and the reason why is because they can do a better job than empathy or they can do that work without the moral risk that empathy has. What, what do you say to that objection? That objection has been made very forcefully, as, as you know, by Jesse Prince and by uh, Paul Bloom in various pieces. And Prince especially recommends anger instead. And I have to say, I really don't understand that. I mean, the risks that both Prince and Bloom point to, above all, is... Um, a kind of localism, uh, being interested, we empathize more with our kin and with people close to us than with people further away. It helps build in-groups and increase hatred towards out-groups. Uh, out it's not the only thing. Both, uh, both uh, Jesse and uh, Paul Bloom have also said that we should think in a cooler way so get all emotions out in a sense and, and become utilitarians and calculate cost-benefit um, do cost-benefit analyses to figure out how to solve things. We may get to that later on. But just talking about other emotions, the idea is supposed to be that empathy is particularly local, 
and anger isn't. And that's what I completely don't get. <laughs> um, first of all, I don't, I should say, as, I, as I've indicated, I don't think of empathy as any particular emotion. Yeah, that's what I was going to, that was going to be my follow-up. <laughs> <laughs> I see, yes. Well, I mean, and I think that's clear on Smith's account. And in this sense, Smith and Hume agree, it's a mode of sharing other people's feelings. On the Humean mode, it is a sort of direct, contagious except uh, sharing of those feelings. And Smithian note, it requires imaginative projection into other people's circumstances. But either way, I might feel joy, I might feel sorrow, I might feel gratitude, anger, almost any emotion, pretty much, probably, probably any emotion, that it is the way by which we share emotions rather than a particular emotion. It could lead us and often leads us to care about other people. And I think in common talk, we assume empathy means caring and feeling loving about others. That is not necessarily true, and it certainly isn't true on Smith's view, but presumably empathy does, I think it does for Smith to build a bond between us to some extent um, and, and make us feel connected to others, feel a certain kind of solidarity with other people, feel that they're like us, that, and, and that certainly provides a context for caring about them. And the people who object to empathy says, yes, it builds that bond only with the people around us, our family, our kin group, uh, people in the neighborhood, as it, as it were. And to some extent, surely that's true because our emotions in general go out more strongly to the people around us, especially uh, our positive emotions. And also we, we also get sometimes more angry with family members and friends than we do at strangers. And in that sense, it, it's true that we may feel closer bonds to local groups than to human beings at large than we do to strangers. But that's also true for anger. Mm -hmm. um, I get angry on behalf of my people, my family, my friends, my neighborhood, my country, um, and can very easily feel intensely angry on their behalf and against everyone I take to be their enemy. Um, I get angry on the behalf of the people I, you know, I march with, I demonstrate with or something. I don't see at all why anger is less locally biased than empathy, especially since, as I said, empathy could be any of a number of emotions or even than caring or, or love. The other thing is, especially Smithian empathy requires this sort of reflective act. I have to project myself imaginatively into somebody else's circumstances. I have to know those circumstances, try to seek the circumstances out, think about them, think about what I, it would be like. And in that respect, it requires a kind of check on what I'm feeling. I feel something for the other person as a result, but as Smith recognizes explicitly, I will probably feel it less intensely than the person themselves or than the things I feel just directly on my own behalf because I go through this reflective process. And in that respect, empathy is, I think, clearly more likely to be ethically useful than other emotions because I'm not feeling it blindly, because it has been infused with this reflective process. So what do you say to that objection that we should use cost-benefit analysis and not empathy to guide our moral reasoning? And, 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 and let, me just, let me just follow up with that in some way. Are the two mutually exclusive? Well, no, not entirely. And in fact, one of my arguments about Smith this is part of what I meant by saying that Smith doesn't build his 
uh, moral system entirely upon empathy. He does see a useful cost-benefit analysis in certain circumstances. He does have a utilitarian streak. He's mostly quite anti-utilitarian. I think he's been misread as a utilitarian in a lot of ways. Um, and he he sees some of the same, it didn't really exist in full force at his time, but he sees some of the same limitations uh, in it, some of the same problems with utilitarianism that a lot of recent philosophers have seen, ignoring uh, f- f- the importance of freedom or the nature of, it, of the individual and the differences between different circumstances, uh, different people's circumstances and so forth. But he does bring it in at various points. He think, he says, for instance, quite explicitly at one point that, you know, if a sentinel falls asleep in his duty in wartime, he may have to be shot. That might be the right penalty because you need to save the largest number of people. A lot of people's lives are in danger when you do something like that. You may need a very stark punishment to deter people from making even fairly innocent errors at that point. He doesn't like that conclusion, but he does seem to think it's necessary there. And there are certainly utilitarian moments in the wealth of nations. And I think when you're thinking about very large institutions uh, and how they figure out policy, sometimes cost-benefit analysis is certainly the right way to go. People who make the case for utilitarianism today, like Paul Bloom and like uh, Cass Sunstein, has a very nice article about the usefulness of cost-benefit analysis. They often talk about situations in which we're talking about health policy or safety policy, and you, you have to choose between helping X million people with a health problem or a safety problem and helping a smaller number. And it seems clearly right that in most cases you should go for the larger number. I think it's Bloom who at one point says, maybe at the end of his book even, that those who have been convinced by his argument should contribute to an organization that provides mosquito netting that at a very low cost can save, uh, prevent malaria for thousands of people. That seems obviously a good thing to do. But in many other cases, we're not talking about costs and benefits, harms and, uh, and goods that are that obvious. And to my mind, there are many things that are problematic with utilitarianism. Many people have pointed out that it's elitist. It, it conduces very readily to thinking that a certain knowledgeable um, elite, well-trained in policy should figure out what everyone else, what, what's good for everyone else and impose that regardless of the people, what the people themselves think, because after all, they're stupid. So in that sense, it's very anti-democratic. Uh, I think that's actually a very deep danger in utilitarianism. Um, it, as Rawls says, tends to uh, blur or be unable to see the differences between people, and that goes along with ignoring the importance of freedom, as I indicated. But the problem I focus on is how do I know what's a harm or a good for you? If I just assume, what's the cost and the benefit? I assume that costs are things that are painful and benefits are things that are pleasurable. I'll have a very crass and crude picture of what you're like, of what people are like generally. Some of the things that we want in life are painful. Some of the things we don't want are pleasurable. Uh, Pleasure and pain are by no means the only metric by which we think about these things. And very often, what one person considers to be good, as opposed to somebody else, will depend upon cultural upbringing, cultural situation, religious views, complicated political views. And I think you will only understand properly what counts as 
a harm or a good, a cost or a benefit, by way of empathy. I think we need empathy to pick up the appropriate harms and goods and to know also at what costs, as it were, what would be the best way, the most respectful way of delivering them to people or helping people access them. I think for all of that, if you get rid of empathy, you will not, in fact, be maximizing benefits and minimizing costs. You'll only do that if people really, if what's good for people is just having pleasure and what's bad is just it's just feeling pain. And I'm afraid that some of the new sort of devotees of utilitarianism do seem to have that kind of pretty crude picture of what's good and what's bad. And that's part of what I'm trying to fight against. I don't know if that's too general. No, 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 no. That, that, that sounds right. So, so, so someone might say, well, what then are the limits to empathy, Sam? <laughs> what are the limits to empathy? And if there are limits, what should we do in response to them? One clear limit is the one we already talked about a little bit, that about uh, which is that I am more likely to empathize accurately and strongly with people I already know and like, and not to do that or not do it much with people I don't know well. Um, I'm much more e- likely to treat people who are distant from me either literally across the world or are very different from me culturally, and I don't have much to do with them, I don't interact with them, in a way in which I reduce them to stereotypes, and I just don't empathize with them, or when I try, I get them wrong. So what do you do about that? First of all, you can help people to get to know one another better. Uh, You can try to bridge some of those gaps, um, uh, either literally by traveling yourself to people in other cultures or make an effort to get to know people uh, who are very different from you, including people right around you, especially in the sort of multicultural cities that we live in, pluralist environments, um, or by way of imaginative literature, uh, journalism, reading more about people, learning more about people. I don't think that will entirely do the job. I think you're still more likely to care most about your family and your kin group and so forth. And that means at least for some purposes, we should not rely on empathy. We should rely on something like um, general rules. Mm-hmm. Uh, so here I turn suddenly kind of Kantian, but that element is also in, in Smith. You're not surprised, I don't think. No. Uh, and, you know, to some extent, having very general rules by which people know what their expectations are and, and what will happen to them if they don't meet those expectations. You know, laws, for instance, can be a way of increasing everybody's freedom and being fairer and more just to everyone, especially across a large uh, pluralist society like the ones we mostly live in. So, yes, I think we want general rules to play a large role, especially in our political life. Yeah, and then finally, there are situations, and many of them, again, for policymakers, in which you have to be thinking in cost-benefit terms. Sometimes you'll be thinking also in terms of general rules. That's the best way to be fair to a lot of people you don't know. You won't be able to empathize with everybody. Um, you won't know their circumstances well enough. And you have to come up with some general policy that's going to be fair to the people you don't know and you haven't thought about adequately. And then sometimes the best thing to do, especially, again, when we're talking about basic goods that you can assume everybody wants, 
basic harms you assume everybody wants to avoid. So again, especially issues around health and safety and maybe basic economic policy. Yeah, cost-benefit analysis should come in there. So those would be some correctives to empathy. So let's talk about empathy and dehumanization. How do you see a lack of empathy play out in kind of what we describe as dehumanizing practices? And, and, and how does Smithian empathy give us, as you say in your book, quote, a tool for working against our demonizing tendencies? I talk in the book about two different kinds of dehumanization. One is bestialization, treating someone, a human being, as if they're less than human, a subhuman, an animal. And the other is demonization, which is, it's not really treating someone as more than human, but as uh, supernaturally powerful and evil. Right. And I think we do both of those things to people we don't know well, and often to people who it's convenient to treat as less than human. Usually people we want to exploit, maybe not admitting that to ourselves, or people we're at war with, we're in some conflict with. So I focus on the demonization part of this in the book. And because Smithian empathy, although I think this will work for both, is precisely about projecting yourself into someone else's circumstances and therefore thinking about how you would feel in their circumstances, whether as yourself or as them. So in part, it might mean thinking about how you would feel if you were the other person. It really doesn't allow you to treat them as less than human. Instantly, you see them as as human as you are, as having the same kinds of motivations, maybe, you know, slightly different in different circumstances. But then you, you in turn have to think, well, how would those, their circumstances, what, what would, how would I become like them if I lived in their circumstances? if I grew up in their culture, if I had their religion and so forth. And I think that cuts us off from being able to reduce them to an animalistic or demonic caricature. And that seems to me extremely important for many reasons. For one thing, if you demonize someone, obviously you may feel you're justified in doing practically anything to stop them. Certainly killing, torturing them, doing all kinds of horrible things. They're not really human anyway, so it doesn't matter what you do to them. That part is obvious, but I think more subtly, when you demonize someone, you're not thinking about things you could do that could help change them. Mm -hmm. That could help, if you think they're doing something evil, once you demonize them, you cut off your ability to speak to them to bring them around, to change them. I mean, there's been a lot of talk about reaching out to white nationalists, for instance, and changing their minds. That happens a little bit here and there. It may not be a hugely effective strategy, but it's not necessarily a strategy to give up on. To the extent it does work, it seems to be preferable to try to turn these people around than to just punish them, make war on them, etc. But more importantly, if we understand how people become white nationalists, we can prevent others from doing so. So when I demonize other people, I cut off my ability to stop other people from becoming like them. Right, right. And then, of course, to the extent that I think I can do anything to someone I regard as a demon, to the extent to which I treat them as not human, 
I dehumanize myself. I demonize myself. I start doing things that I shouldn't do. I become like the person I project or the, the non-person I project into them. I can mm. become incredible evil, incredibly evil. I think something like Abu Ghraib, much less Stalin's camps or the death camps in Nazi Germany, those things become are themselves as close as human beings come to being a demon and they come about because you've demonized other people. So I think we do have to work against those tendencies. You know, in the midst of a heated battle, you may temporarily inevitably see your enemy as a, as a demon and you may have to do that because the only thing you can do to save your own life is to destroy them. But mostly we don't want to be in that situation with other people and we shouldn't. We shouldn't be like that. And I think Smithian empathy enables us to develop a sense of the, a rich sense of the humanity of everyone we live with um, and therefore, thereby minimize demonization across our society. And that seems to me unequivocally good. thinking about giving the opera a chance. I know this is going to be surprising to lots of people who may be listening to this. I've been giving lots of things a chance during this pandemic. Um, But I've been thinking about giving the opera, that is going to the opera chance uh, once the pandemic is over. And I really do need some motivational help. I was watching a Mozart documentary a few days ago and I thought about you. I was like, "Hmm, I I I think I can really get into this. I may need some extra motivational help. So, so tell me, why do you love the opera so much? And how have you survived without it during this pandemic? <laughs> oh, who's to say I have survived without oh, it? Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, both because there's some opera online and I don't know how much I'm surviving. But um, look, I grew up in an opera-saturated house. For my dad, if I if you denied the existence of God, that was okay. You know, we have open open minds in the house. If you denied that Mozart was the greatest composer, that was not okay. You might have to you know eat in the dark house or whatever. Um, and you know, he played classical music, pretty much exclusively classical music, pretty much every hour he was home. And we went to the opera very regularly. And, and, and I grew up in the Hague in in, in Holland and. Uh, opera is heavily subsidized by the government and it's quite cheap. I remember getting good seats as a student for $5. Um, and that might be more now, but it's still relatively cheap and very interesting uh, productions with young singers who also could act, which you don't see in the opera often. This is what I'll say, and I hope there's some kind of motivation. <laughs> at its best, and I admit, opera is often not at its best. Many operas okay. are not that good or badly performed, but at its best, by far the most moving moments I have ever had in the theater, the moments that made me feel chills all over or cry have been almost always at the opera. But rare, it's rare. But when it's happened, it's been just fabulous, like the best theatrical experience I've ever had. I mean, I do love classical music, too. So I love even listening to these things and even the bad performance I'll enjoy in some way. But at its best, opera is just like transcendent. But one thing that happened is we used to listen to operas like over and over again for two weeks before we went to see them. And that's the way that the music would like really sink in. Um, it's not that easy for most operas to just step in and enjoy it right off. Um, two operas that almost always work 
in my opinion, uh, that uh, dramatically and musically. The music is fun. It's catchy. It, it's deeper when you listen to it more, but it's uh, catchy immediately. Are Carmen? I mean, these famous ones you can see all the, right. all the time. And Porgy and Bess, actually. Yeah, okay. um, I'm familiar with both of those. See? I'm, okay. I'm okay. <laughs> and it's very... a little bit easier. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No, those two. They're they're uh, they're wonderful. Music dramas too, and they they do give you chills at their best moments. There's a film of Carmen from 1984, um, directed by this Italian director Francesco Rossi, which is really really good. But if you've seen both of the, if you've seen that, then that's fine. Um, I would recommend also online now. Um, I don't know if the Carmen film's online. There's a very nice uh, performance. Of a fun opera that also it has a it's a comic opera and it, unlike many things that are called comic opera it's actually funny and it's okay. cleverly plotted with one very very beautiful very very famous aria in the middle of it that you'll probably recognize. Uh, it's by Puccini, who's very famous generally, but uh, not for this so much. It's a, little, it's a little opera called Gianni Schicchi, and it takes under an hour. It's fifty five minutes. And there's a performance by the British Royal Opera Company online, which is really good. Uh, subtitles and uh, and very nicely acted and very well sung. And it's really fun. I was just looking at it. Um, the other one that I would recommend online, um, an opera I like very much. It's a little bit more difficult musically, but it's very rich and, and moving. Uh, fairly quickly one might feel that you might feel it immediately is a Czech opera called the cunning little vixen hmm. um, okay. which is based on a comic strip and there's an animated version online which is really charming and um, they it's also I think it, generally it's a little bit longer than this but the animated version online is only an hour long and it's done very nicely uh, opera is Opera isn't a style, it's a genre. So there's many different kinds of operas as there are different kinds of novels. And um, people often think that opera is like, it's just Italian or German people singing very loudly. And that's <laughs> not true. <laughs> there are, you know, 300 years worth of opera in, in like at least four or five different languages and, and, and this comic and this tragic and, so you might like some stuff and really won't be able to stand other stuff. But those are those are three, I think, that, that you'd find fun. You mentioned your father being a fan of Mozart. Who is your yeah. favorite composer? So you warned me you were going to ask me this. And I was thinking, well, I'm going to have to say Mozart. Because, of <laughs> course, how can I not, right? My dad's not around anymore. But, but you know, in his memory. <laughs> um, and I do think Mozart's really, really wonderful. You know, it's like, Shakespeare, if somebody's asking who's the greatest playwright, the first thing that comes to mind to anyone who speaks English is going to be, well, of course, Shakespeare, right? Even if you don't really think that, just say that. I do love Mozart. I do love his operas too. But over the years, I've become fond enough of Brahms and inspired enough and excited enough by Brahms. And I at least sometimes think Brahms is my favorite composer. My son, Were they in the same period? Were they in the same no, period? No, uh, it's a hundred year difference. Mozart is squarely classical. He kind of inaugurates the romantic period a bit. And Bach is squarely romantic, although he sort of at moments anticipates what 
people call modern music. Uh, he was a big favorite of the modern composer Schoenberg. Um, he's, Brahms, he just, he feels like he lived and breathed music. Actually, to some extent, that's true for Mozart. And you can feel extremely excited when you listen to some of this stuff. No opera, um, very little vocal music, but the chamber music, the symphonies. The first symphony is just great. You're going to mention something about your son. He shares my love of music. He, he became a serious. We wanted both kids to learn an instrument, whatever they did later on. I, my parents made me play the violin, but didn't make me practice. And I wound up being really lousy and, and, okay. and likewise, didn't get my time. <laughs> oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Which instrument in your case? Violin. Violin. <clears throat> oh, violin also. Yeah. Okay. So we didn't make our son uh, play an instrument, but when he did, we did make him practice. And he has, he plays the cello very, very seriously. It's a big part of his life. He's actually, he's entering a graduate program in history at UCLA, but also a music performance uh, master's in the cello. Um, and he loves Brahms too. And he, he makes fun of me a bit because I don't have appreciate enough popular music. He actually was part of a an all cello rock band and they played oh, wow. a number of rock songs in on the cello. Uh, and he's got a sort of wider taste that way. But I think he's more a Brahms and a Mozart guy. And I have moved in that direction over the years. So speaking of popular music. Do you listen to it, I wonder? And if you do, what is the last song that you actually listened to and enjoyed? Please surprise me. Please surprise oh, me. Sam. Oh, oh, no, I'm afraid <laughs> no, 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 I No pressure, won't. no pressure, no Not pressure. Not in the right way. Well, I, I was thinking about this. I was going to ask my, my wife for tips. You know, can I, can I come up with something? See, the thing is this. I, don't, I never sit down to listen to popular music. I hear it often because... My neighbors play it somewhat loudly. Mm-hmm. Um, my wife and I have taken to doing a really nice online um, exercise routine uh, from a group called the Team Body Project uh, two or three times a week. And they they use popular music as their background music. And, I, and a lot of it I do quite like, but I don't know the names of anything. <laughs> I was going to pick up some stuff from my son. I know he, he played some songs by Coldplay, but that's already very old. Uh, and I like those. <laughs> I don't remember the names of them. <laughs> um, there was an Amy Winehouse song. I don't know her name. I don't okay. know the name of the song. Uh, so that's about as far as I could get. Uh, there are some, you know, standards from the 60s and 70s whose names I actually know and rather like. Who are they? Uh, Who are they? Oh, okay. So my uh, one of the songs my son played often, which I have always liked, is Hotel California. Um, oh, of course, the Beatles. I mean, it's embarrassing mm-hmm. to say that. Right, but, right. Uh, you know, Penny Road is a great song, I think. Um, you know, some of the Stones. I... The thing is, even at the time, I've always been uncool. I, I, that's probably not going to surprise you. Um, I say, even in the 60s, I mean, that is that is to suggest that popular music is like to, to be a popular music fan is to be cool. I don't think that's the necessary sufficient condition for what you're saying. Well, I don't know about sufficient, but necessary seems clear. <laughs> Sam, I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. 
There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.